How has the militarization of Nagaland impacted women? How do Naga women writers shape feminist perspectives on the region? And why does the responsibility of peacekeeping end up falling on women in Nagaland? Hi, this is Aditi and you're listening to the In Perspective podcast, where academics reveal little-known facts about Indian history, society and culture. In this episode, we are taking you back to a conversation from August 2020, when we spoke to scholar and activist Professor Rosemary Zuvichu. Because you've played this role as an expert member on many commissions and and played the sort of formal advisory role on issues that the Northeast faces, what would you say are some of the major development challenges or hurdles facing the Northeast today? See, I've been a part of perhaps the first academic group of uh, experts for the South Asian Highway. And then later on also with the National Commission for Women on Northeast issues and Northeast women. And also on the UGC. Uh, you know, for opening up women's studies centers and all. As far as development in the Northeast is concerned, I think we all have to understand that unless we have these armed conflicts, which are ongoing within the region, the question of uh, development really doesn't come into being. Uh, We have questions of uh, lack of accountability. Huge funds are being, uh, you know, poured into the Northeast. But when there's no monitoring system from the central government, as well as also, you know, that uh, accountability which is enforced within the states, I think this is one of the major challenges that we are looking at in the days ahead. Even if we are talking of, uh, you know, Modiji's uh, look east policy, moving on to the act east policy, um, I think uh, as academics and as people who have been studying the policy and the kind of changes that are going on in the Northeast, uh, no doubt there will be a lot of changes as we foresee. You know, you're already having the express highway that's almost going to reach uh, the borders of uh, Manipur, uh, straight from, you know, the Southeast Asian countries. And I think these are major things that are going to have, I mean, happen within the uh, Actis policy. Uh, Northeasterners are very clear that we definitely do not be a buffer zone. Uh, We have to be participatory in that kind of development. I think when we were even talking of the Southeast Asian, the South Asian Highway, we were already raising a lot of gender concerns. You know, uh, the fact that our women, as far as the economy is concerned, you know, the women take a huge role in in bringing the economy of the state in all the Northeast states. But again, their role as far as uh, women who are economically empowered is actually very, very dismal. And within such a setup, you're going to have a lot of gender concerns of how prepared are your uh, women and the agricultural farmers and, you know, those kind of trade and commerce. Are we going to be flooded by the kind of uh, products that are coming uh, from across the border? And it already has. The question here is how prepared is India, you know, in uh, facing these kind of challenges and preparing the Northeast to face this kind of uh, concerns and challenges. And we must remember, we still have the Armed Forces Special Powers Act. There's huge militarization of the region. And how much does militarization, you know, how conducive is it really for trade and commerce and looking at the and looking at the East? Um, major concerns, because on one side, you have uh, a lot of these states asking for repeal of the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, which uh, has a terrible history in these conflict zones. 
and unless you have a conducive peace and unless these armed conflicts within the different states uh, which which is still present uh, where peace talks are going on with the government of india i think the government of india really needs to put it act together and get serious and if it really wants to have you know a uh, uh, further development within the region uh, we need to look at resolutions of these armed conflicts and definitely a sustainable peace and when we are talking of a sustainable peace uh, it has to be also a just peace particularly for women you know we are again looking at the united nations 1325 uh, rape as a war crime till date no action has been taken on the kind of uh, terrible history which many of the northeast states have faced under the afspy and under militarization army atrocities village groupings rape of women killings you know so um it's so so very similar to what kashmir is uh, gone through and i think unless we see this form of justice uh, we really cannot think of that kind of a peace that's going to be sustained in in the in the near future so one of the points that you sort of talked about is the issue with the northeast becoming a buffer zone without really being a part of the developing process could you explain the pitfalls of that a little bit and and um of the way in which the lukis policy is playing out you see the lukis policy has been has been literally a mantra that has been uh, you know spoken of so highly with the central government and literally promising the northeast that's what they're going to do with modi you have the active policy now supposedly uh, but i still see so many challenges as i was uh, saying because in the first place how participatory are you really making the northeast you know because when we open our borders we are looking at trade and commerce we already even without this policy uh, ongoing we already flooded with goods from china and from across the border uh, which i think you will you will see that uh, many of us who live along the highways and along the trade routes uh, would rather prefer buying those kind of goods which are much more cheaper than uh, searching for indian goods which are much difficult to get and uh, too far away even to think in terms of that you know because you when you share borders with these international trade centers then it literally makes sense for the government of india to really build up these trade centers as of now there are no serious uh, developed trade centers along the borders of the northeastern states that we see uh, these are literally village trade centers that are going on and i think if you are thinking in terms of huge uh, development uh, policies then you really need to take the people along and the development in terms of roads railways yes there are a lot of projects that are uh, coming up and being promised by the same time there are also a lot of environmental concerns which needs to take into consideration and also the cultures and practices of the indigenous people where land land is actually something that is so precious you know to Uh, to to the tribals and it is very very different from other parts of india where perhaps the government of india owns a large uh, tract of land or owns land in tribal areas like nagaland and other places the government does not own land land is owned by the individuals by tribes by the clans by the villagers but the government does not own land you know so a lot of issues even in terms of development because these are also the bottlenecks that we have seen over the years when uh, roads are to be built or railways are to be you know uh, brought in then you have uh, issues of land compensation and then when you see the national uh, forest act 
you know, the tribal draft policy, National Forest Act, when you look into all these policies, you also find that compensation to the tribals have to be given and to forest dwellers have to be given. A lot of this is actually not uh, you know, given out. And in such a situation, it is difficult to acquire land and really look forward to uh, the kind of development. But I would still see militarization as one of the biggest challenges and armed conflict, because as long as we have an unsettled uh, political problem, uh, which is, you know, continuously simmering in the Northeast, we will not see investors coming in. Uh, we will not see out outsiders really coming in because of uh, questions of security and safety and, you know, a plethora of other excuses which uh, have been given over the years. You know, a big part of your work has also been representing um, the Northeast on global and international forums and looking into the idea of um, indigenous cultures globally and the need to focus on the knowledge forms and the practices of um, indigenous peoples. Um, I just wanted to understand that do you think that there is a lack of understanding of um, indigenous cultures of the Northeast? And how do you think that that plays out in the Indian state's policies, um, for instance, something like the dog meat ban? One, I think uh, just as uh, the rest of India has a lot of misconceptions about us, we probably also have a lot of misconceptions about the rest of the country and their culture and their eating habits. But I, I like to think that, you know, it all boils down to being educated. As long as we have syllabis, you know, in the schools and colleges and universities that do not touch about each other's culture, it is very difficult for the rest of India to also understand about the Northeast or even about Nagaland for that matter. Uh, we are totally different. And most times, you know, the rest of the country clubs the Northeast as a unit and as a whole. You know, and it is unfortunate because we are eight states, very, very different from each other, different languages, different culture. And yet I think the beauty of the Northeast is that we are united as a region and as a very, very strategic region for India and the rest of the country. Uh, so um, one is, of course, being quite uh, illiterate about, you know, each other's cultures. And I think that's also one of the problems that I see um, in the racism that continues in cities against Northeasterners, in the kind of discrimination that one sees even in educational institutes and in, uh, you know, premier institutes, which we have seen discrimination of tribals and Northeasterners and also racism. We've also seen, uh, we've also seen uh, violence, sexual uh, harassment, molestation in cities on our Northeastern girls. And this is a lot to do with the idea that the rest of India does not understand that Northeast has been a part of the country and they look at us as foreigners. And right now with the coronavirus that is going on, we're literally, you know, uh, clubbed together with China, which is uh, quite a distance away. Uh, though for some of the states it is quite near, you know. So uh, there is that sense of uh, uh, lack of knowledge, total lack of knowledge and lack of understanding about the people in, in the Northeast. But at the same time, we also have to understand that India is a country of diverse cultures. It is a country of diversity. And if this is to be celebrated and understood, then we also need to accept each other's, uh, you know, diversities. Um, and the simple fact right now is, of course, you know, um, Nagas, we eat a lot of beef, you know, that doesn't make us Muslims. Uh, but, you know, traditionally it has been a part of our uh, of a diet. Uh, recently, there's a huge uh, outcry even within the state 
on the ban of dogs, dog meat, the sale of dog meat. Dog meat traditionally actually is a medicinal food for Nagas and not for all tribes, but for particular tribes among the Nagas themselves. It is used as a medicinal uh, kind of food. It is used for lactating mothers, uh, expecting mothers. It is used as a, as a, a strength, uh, a food of strength for traditional wrestlers, Naga wrestlers, you know. They won't eat other meat except dog meat during such a period. And so many homes rear dogs simply for its food. But yet again, traditionally, if you look into our folk tales and folk uh, folklores, you will find that the dog has always been the Naga warrior's best friend, whether on his way to wars, whether on his way to the field, you know. So every Naga home has a dog, a pet dog. Uh, most probably they won't eat that dog, you know, so they will probably buy another uh, meat if they do they would probably buy another kind of uh, meat uh, outside the home but they would not go for their pet dog you know so one really needs to understand that these are the kind of foods that cannot be banned it's literally like you know the government stepping into your kitchen and telling you don't cook this and don't cook that i think those days are gone you know, those days are gone and it should not be encouraged uh, there has to be respect of each other's food and the kind of uh, culture that we have um, I would see academic exchanges as uh, perhaps a positive, you know, um, way forward. Your students um, and academia from colleges and universities, young people coming for youth exchanges. Uh, our young people going out to other cities as well as even Indian uh, students and uh, youth coming into the northeastern region, visiting the northeast region, because it's actually a tourist uh, paradise. You know, you have hills and valleys and snow and mountains and, you know, things that you would not imagine we also do have. So I think uh, these are positive things that we can look at. I would really encourage uh, young people. We have uh, eight central universities in the northeast. We have a lot of other uh, private universities too. And the universities are doing well, offering a lot of interesting, you know, um, subjects. We have a lot of uh, uh, colleges, very, very good colleges. Uh, the advantage, I think, for the Northeast has been the medium of English and for Nagaland too. The instruction, the medium of instruction is English and has been for years. And so I think that is also one of the major uh, advantages of having this kind of education. Uh, we do have students who come from abroad also in a lot of these universities. Uh, we have uh, Southeast Asian uh, students also coming in. So uh, there are uh, possibilities of building and bridging these culture gaps and, uh, you know, <laughs> lack of understanding by visiting each other, you know, homestays. Uh, when you go abroad and, you know, you are um, supposed to go for home hospitalities. And I think these kind of uh, practices need to be thought about to for younger people to really understand who we really are in the Northeast and that we are not a, a tribe or a community ready with our dows and spears, you know. We actually are very warm, uh, hospitable uh, people in the region. And you will see that the hospitality that you receive in the Northeast is actually very different from even uh, any kind of hospitality you would think abroad. One of the things that you mentioned right at the beginning was the challenge of militarization and, and how any positive change or challenges to it are linked to militarization. It is, unfortunately, a big part of the history of uh, Nagaland and many parts of the Northeast, actually. In your scholarly work and in your activism, you've dealt with this extensively. 
Could you talk a little bit about the impact that this has had on women and how has it um, affected the sort of civil society movements that women have led? You see, if you look into the history of the Northeast, you'll find that Nagaland, where I come from, has one of the longest histories of uh, militarization. Uh, the struggle for self-determination, which still continues, more than 70 decades of uh, living under the Armed Forces Special Powers Act. And uh, you will remember that the Armed Forces Special Powers Act was actually brought in to control the Naga uh, uh, freedom movement and the Naga mil so-called militants, which the Indian government defines them as. So within this kind of uh, background, you've had the struggle of Naga women uh, born into this kind of culture of war traditionally, because all our villagers and our tribes are always uh, warring people. And yet within that culture of war, you've had women making peace and building peace, you know, whether it was peace between villagers and tribes or whether it was uh, peace between militant groups or very often as it is now, it has changed over the years because as of now, what we see our role as women and uh, as you must have heard of the Naga Mothers Association, which plays a very, very strong role along with the other tribal women organizations in peacemaking as well as in peacekeeping. I think we are literally the peacekeepers in the society if you look at what is going on uh, in the region, whether it's Naga women or even other uh, women across uh, across the states. Um, it has always been a, a, a practice which has been you know, uh, inculcated into tribal women, that we are the peacemakers. And and over the years, with the kind of experiences uh, we have had, whether it's in at the hands of militarization or at the hands of uh, sexual violence, which has been, you know, a, a, a terrible history, uh, you will you will still find that women are resilient. Uh, they have, you know, moved on. Uh, besides this, and and I think there is a genuine search for peace, which needs to be understand, which needs to be understood by the rest of the country, uh, because in the midst of a continuous war, you still have these huge organizations of women that are struggling for peace and struggling for their voices to be heard. You know, initially you had uh, women, Naga women particularly, you had women who would only talk about peace. And half their lives were about peace and bringing peace uh, within the men, the armed groups, and also searching for peace with the Indian Army. Um, it has only been as late, perhaps, as the what the 20th century, 2000 onwards, that you have had women's movements for their rights. You know, so it took us a lot of time actually to talk about peace and our suffering, and all this is actually articulated in the kind of movements that we have had. And it's only then that you know women's rights our spaces in decision-making bodies, our voices to be there in the local bodies or even in the parliament or the assembly. You know, it's only as recent as that you've suddenly had women you know, really moving into these kind of uh, arenas. And it's interesting uh, the way it has um, forged itself into a women's struggle. And the slogan of the Naga Mothers, you know, right from the 80s till today has been shed no more blood. And uh, for tribal women, I think this is something which is very important. Um, I look at the movements of Indian, uh, you know, Indian women's movements, much more ahead of us, much more stronger, much more vocal. But we also need to understand that the, that the kind of experiences that Northeast women and Naga women have had is something that is totally different 
from the experiences which many Indian women have had and many women's movements have had. I would think of ourselves very similar to the Kashmiri women, the kind of experiences, uh, perhaps the movements uh, which is going on in Chhattisgarh and the experiences of the Chhattisgarh women. Uh, we, we do find echoes of each other's experiences in the kind of movements, but definitely not in the movements of urban Indian women and the, you know, in the voices for your rights. Uh, it, it has taken us a lot of time really, to step into these uh, spaces of seeking for our rights and our voices. Why do you think that um, peacekeeping is something that ends up falling on the shoulders of women, or why is it something that you know women end up taking charge of? Mm-hmm. You see, um, Shristi, if you look into our culture, traditionally the roles of men and women have been clearly defined. The men were for making war, And the women were to look after their families and, you know, live a peaceful life and look at their backyard uh, farming. And traditionally, that has what what been uh, Naga society has been. But over the years, I think that very same culture, we have moved on into this uh, modern complex uh, situation where our men are busy making wars. And you will find that uh, there are very few among among our men who actually are the peacemakers and it falls it is our responsibility it has literally become a responsibility for naga women to bear that uh, you know to bear that uh, role of bringing peace into the land uh, it is also a concern for the future and the younger generation we've had decades of war decades of differences we do not want deaths of our young boys and uh, in, in the jungles nor do we want the deaths of Indian uh, army soldiers. It's the same everywhere. You know, so shedding of blood and differences among ourselves should stop because in this day and age, I think we're all looking towards peace and peace, I think, can be brought much better because of of, uh, the strength of women. Persuasions, language, you know, there are so many aspects which uh, women find it easier to talk in terms of peace rather than perhaps are men and their egos and you know it, it is difficult for men to sit across the table and really uh, persuade each other in a language of peace if you think uh, if, if you compare it to what women can do and i think that has been the success story of many of our women organizations one of the things that you mentioned is that a lot of a lot of the questions around women's representation or Central questions of feminist of the feminist movement actually arose later on. One of these, what ended up becoming a major flashpoint and almost brought the state to a standstill in 2017, was the question of um, 33% reservation for women in urban municipal bodies in Nagaland. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how that has played out historically, given that you are someone who's also been um, involved in politics on ground quite extensively. Um, yeah, the women reservation movement. What, you see, uh, the 73rd Amendment of the Indian Constitution does not affect Nagaland because we have our own traditional village councils. We don't have the Panchayati Raj, you know. And therefore, within the because the 73rd doesn't touch us, we don't have this reservation for women and you don't see women's participation in the village councils per se. We do have a system which is called the Village Development Board where you do have um, one-fourth reservation for women and but this is just a development board it's just in terms of development uh, funds and not otherwise not decision making the 74th amendment includes nagaland so the urban local bodies definitely is a space where naga women were looking for a space 
the Nagali Municipal Act was uh, was passed in 2001. The amendment was passed in 2006. And the amendment was passed because a Naga woman went to court and challenged the state government for not having reservation for women in the Municipal Act. And so the act had to be amended as per the orders of the court. And so by 2006, we were happy, we were celebrating, thinking that reservation for women had come. And we would see a lot of women there in our municipalities and town committees. Unfortunately, it took us more than uh, six to seven years in the court. Um, writing representations after representations of the government did not work. And finally, we took them to court in 2011. From 2011 till 2016, we were in the court, right from the high court, where the high court, actually a single judge uh, judgment, very categorically stated that the state government had to implement the uh, women reservation in the ULBs, the uh, urban local bodies, because it was as per the law. And even though at that point of time, the state government came in with a plea that uh, that uh, Article 371A does not allow it, the court said this reservation in municipalities has nothing to do with customary practices, nor land and resources. And in our customary practices, we did not have urban governance as such. We were not talking about the village councils, we were talking about the towns. And therefore, uh, women needed that space. Uh, the government again uh, took us to the division bench after this judgment and from the division bench we went to the Supreme Court and uh, we had the help of the Human Rights Law Network, Dr. Colin Gonzalez and his team. And uh, it took us so long there in the Supreme Court, literally facing the uh, Advocate General of the state for years altogether on a simple matter like municipal elections, which was happening in many other states. And unfortunately in Nagaland, on one excuse or the other, it just didn't happen. In 2016, April, we got a, a relief order from the Supreme Court, which stated that relief is being given to the petitioners and therefore elections should be held. The government then had changed and they were very positive towards the women and said that we would be having the elections. And it was with that understanding that they would hold the elections. Uh, two of us as petitioners, we withdrew a petition saying that if you're going to hold the elections, fine, we'll withdraw. Because there was so much of pressure from the tribe bodies that if we withdrew, yes, elections could be held and this and that. So we said, why create unnecessary problems, you know? And uh, unfortunately, it didn't happen. Elections were held in certain places, but they were nullified. And in major towns like Nagaland, like Kohima and Dimapur, elections could not be held. You had tribal bodies that walked the streets. You had uh, young youth leaders who walked the streets. You even had tribe women who were actually a part of this whole women's rights movement who were literally coerced by their tribe bodies to come out on the streets. You know, So there was this total unexpected... Um, movement and wave in Nagaland where we were the petitioners and the women who were actually fighting for those kind of rights were literally made out to be uh, witches. I, I think that was a terminology that they even you know, took us back literally to the 18th and 19th century women's movement. And uh, so we went through that kind of a process where there was a lot of uh, threats and violence, uh, threats of violence, you know, which continued in many other on many other women leaders too. And uh, that is where we ended. Till today, the municipal elections is not held. The matter is sub in the Supreme Court. Um, 
the present government is has been planning to hold the municipal elections um and we've had two three meetings already and we've made it very clear to them that there is a law and uh, the matter is also sub judice and it is very clear that the state has to follow the law uh, let us see in the days ahead what is going to happen hopefully um, the government also will realize uh, the stand of the women the legal there've been a lot of uh, misinterpretations too by lawyers to the government and this is what literally happens when lawyers misinterpret the law and then all these politicians are also literally hanging on the words of the lawyers you know so i think times have changed um, there are very positive uh, political leaders now hopefully in the days to come we will see these kind of changes happening uh, the question of political representation therefore <laughs> within such a scenario uh, we need to remember that um, it is 60 plus years of statehood we have not had a single woman legislator sitting in the nagaland assembly in 1975 we have had a woman parliamentarian who was elected on the regional party not from the congress that speaks a lot about women empowerment not, neither from the bjp nor any other uh, national party uh, strictly from the regional party they fielded a woman candidate she became the parliamentarian from 1975 onwards mrs rano shaiza and i think for nagas that has been you know uh, a case in point for us but since then it isn't that women have not tried there have been women candidates who have uh, stepped into politics and you must remember most of the political parties some of the most active uh, political activists uh, activists in those political parties are the women almost every party has a women's wing a mahila uh, wing where the women are much more active than the men and as i even said earlier uh, you know looking at the population and the uh, uh, the ratio we are literally half the population of nagaland and so you have women who are active voters very very active during elections but at the same time you do not see women candidates coming up and i think one of the main reasons uh, particularly for outsiders one needs to understand is that elections in nagaland is very different it is a lot to do with huge sums of money and when women do not have that kind of money a uh, very few women will think of stepping into the electoral process though some of them have done it uh, secondly you have not had uh, strong political national parties fielding women candidates till date you have not had that you have not had the congress uh, party fielding a woman candidate even till today in spite of the women empowerment slogans uh, the bjp has offered uh, tickets but maybe probably to the wrong ones who would not be very interested in politics and um, then the regional party you know also still needs to think seriously about the importance of women coming into decision making roles and you must remember as far as nagaland politics is concerned uh, you will find that all the men will stand together when it comes to choosing a woman candidate so you do face that kind of a wall and uh, for women candidates uh, questions of winability will always be you know thrown up uh, even if they are possible candidates you know potential candidates questions of her winability would always come up but i think at the end of the day in a state that is mired in militarization and conflict and armed conflict and with armed groups you must remember that elections is also a matter of guns and money and uh, my my take has always been you know in the many lectures that i have given 
my take has always been that as far as women are concerned, perhaps we'll get the guns, we'll have the support of the guns because the mothers and the women have always uh, supported the movement for peace. And definitely, therefore, you do find voices that support women's participation from these groups. But then again, uh, the money is controlled by those uh, very same politicians who've been sitting there for years. And so that that's also one of the difficulties, I think, that uh, we are not seeing the visible presence of women as far as electoral politics is concerned. But I hope in the next election we will see. We will see because there are a lot of young, educated, enthusiastic young women leaders who are there. Some of them are very politically ambitious. So hopefully we will see these kind of changes in, in the coming years. Um, you know, on a related note of positivity, um, I think very often uh, women's stories, women's histories don't find place in mainstream narratives, but what ends up being missing from mainstream histories is often found in literature. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Naga feminist narratives and um, what is their value as discourse? If you, if you read up anything on Naga history, you will find that our historical books are silent on our women. So it's literally, you know, a story about our men. But then again, whether it is the political um, history, um, the movement, and uh, whether it's of peacemaking and what is happening now, women do play a very, very vital role within the society. But it has been uh, such a struggle. And I think um, over the years, what we are seeing is, one, we are seeing a sudden surge of writers. And there are some very successful women writers in English uh, that have made their mark in the Indian literary scene in writings in English, uh, in Indian writers writing in English. So we do have very good writers who have uh, come up. We also have, uh, among the younger generation, again, a, a huge group of young writers who are coming up, writing very well in English, publishing short stories, poems, novellas, and again, these are girls, young women, you know, so the the ratio of uh, writers is definitely, you know, uh, with women writers on the rise. Uh, I don't know how many of you would be familiar with uh, Naga women writers, but I know many of our writers have now featured in textbooks, in, uh, in the syllabus of uh, universities even abroad as well as in India. So that's a positive note that I would like to start on. Uh, one of our, we, I would think of four major uh, writers uh, looking at them because you find that as far as literature is concerned, whether it's in poetry or whether it's in fiction, most of our women have been articulating and uh, telling their experiences and their stories and the stories of their grandmothers and their mothers through the kind of literature that they write. Whether it is in the local dialects or whether it is in English, I think this is the is the trend that we, we look at. Uh, Isterin Kire is one of our more prominent writers. Um, she's written several novels. Um, one I would like to think of is uh, A Terrible Matriarchy. Uh, it has won a lot of awards. Uh, in the terrible matriarchy too, whether it's in her poetry or in her the rest of her novels like uh, Son of the Thunder Cloud or Mari 
uh, in a terrible matriarchy, she looks at uh, how actually uh, discrimination of the girl child is inherent in the Naga culture and particularly in the Angami culture that she comes from, the tribe that I am from, where even within the home, you know, even within the home, pieces of the meat are distributed according to your gender, you know. So the thigh, which is the thigh, the chicken thigh, which is actually the most coveted piece of meat for most children, is, is saved for the brother and not the little girl who wants to have it, you know. That's what the grandmother tells, that it's for your brother and not for you. You know, so throughout her life, this is what uh, she is taught, the girl, the Naga girl is taught. And I think this is how they grow up. And a lot of these kind of experiences are again narrated, whether it's at the in the village remembered or in many of our other stories, you find that Easterine narrates these kind of experiences. And uh, there is a sort of acceptance, but at the same time, uh, there is a very strong protest laid out in the characterization and in the language and in the imageries that are created throughout her novels. You have Professor Temsla Ao. She's also a very prominent uh, writer now, retired professor from the Northeastern Hill University. Uh, short stories, novels, and uh, poetry. Uh, again, I, I think uh, someone who has left home, uh, lived in Shillong for, the, for a large part of her life, and uh, writes back again of her homeland, comes back, and there is that quest for her roots, for her identity as a woman, as a daughter, as a mother, you know. So there is a lot of fusion of culture and the search and the quest for identity and uh, the search for a voice and a voice for herself and her children and her community. And uh, I think reading uh, the the stories which uh, Professor Temsula gives in her in her narrations is also very indicative of Naga women being a storehouse of your folklores, your folk tales. This is explored and, you know, again, uh, narrated even in Easterine's uh, poetry and in her uh, short stories and also the same in uh, Temsula. You must have heard of Mona Lisa Changeja. I don't know how many of you have heard of her. Mona Lisa is an editor. She's a publisher. She's a writer. But she is, I think, I would still regard her as one of our strongest feminist writers today among Naga women writers in terms of challenging society, in terms of challenging armed groups and diktats, which, you know, uh, during those uh, troubled periods we've had over the years, uh, challenging uh, patriarchy, uh, challenging uh, tribe bodies and their diktats, you know, so a lot of these experiences are woven into her poetry which is a poetry of protest, no doubt, very strong uh, voices of how women suffer and yet keep silent and that, you know, you're no longer going to keep silent, but you are going to talk about it on pages of pain, words on pages of pain. That's what she says, you know. So uh, there is an exploration and explosion, I think, of uh, women's feelings and their experiences that one sees in the pages and in the poetry that she writes about, which, which she still does, you know, in the essays, in the articles that she writes, I think she's still a very, very strong voice of, uh, of Naga women and uh, someone worth reading. Um, and the plus point of uh, these writers is that we do have a lot of uh, research scholars now, students at the university level who come and who've been doing so much of research on their works. And I think this is something that's amazing. There's a lot of interest in feminism, in feminist theories, in uh, Naga women writers, you know, uh, much more than uh, than we have on uh, on men who write in English, 
Um, you, might, you might have heard also of Nini Lungalang. Nini died uh, last year, unfortunately. Uh, one of our best writers in English, as far as language is concerned, um, very, 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 very rich uh, language, uh, perhaps because of the background that she was um, brought up in, uh, studied in Shillong, came back home, taught English, and has been an English teacher for, you know, for the better part of her life. And the kind of uh, poems that she writes, very personal, deeply personal, but very reflective of the armed conflict that went on around her in the town, in the villages. And also, I think, a celebration of the father figure. You know, in spite of all the uh, voices of, you know, rebellion and for our rights and everything, I think deep down in most Naga women, consciousness, or maybe in all Naga women's consciousness, I really wouldn't know, is also that deep respect we keep for our men. You know, so that respect of the father, the father figure, the male figure, and, uh, you know, literally trying to uh, to understand the depth and the, the kind of uh, layers that covers our society is again reflected in our poetry. Um, so looking at these, at least these four, and then, you know, over the last uh, five uh, to the last two, three years, we've had much younger writers, uh, poets, short story writers. Avinyo Kire is one I would look out for. Teye um, Kedichu is another. Recently, you've had young writers like Ado Solo. Um, you've had uh, Rita, Rita who keeps on, she's a journalist. Uh, writes very well, continuously uh, keeps on uh, writing. You would see her posts also on Facebook. You know, so uh, these are younger writers who I think uh, have less struggle with what is going on around them because they are more exposed to other cultures too and they are trying to adjust themselves within the kind of confines that society has brought about them. And there is that exploration. And on the whole, there is a lot of more optimism, I think, in the kind of writings that they have as compared to perhaps my generation of Easterine and Mona Lisa and uh, Nini and, you know, the other senior writers. But uh, if you look at women's writings, which began in the 50s, uh, Naga women's writings actually began as early as the 50s, uh, when you hardly had any men writing. And who were these women? They were writing in the traditional, in their uh, language, which is Tenidye, which is what I speak. And most of them, I almost imagine them almost uh, to be writings of Emily Dickinson. You know, there's a lot of religiosity in the kind of writings, in the celebration of nature. And, you know, there are hardly any writings about their rights and, you know, their families and their homes. A lot of it is to do with God and nature and, you know. So hopefully these uh, early writings also will be translated and we are on the way of doing that. So there will be translations, but uh, there there are actually a lot of opportunities uh, because a lot of research is being done on these women writers, particularly on the idea of feminism and how, you know, uh, feminism, uh, you know, to talk of um, feminism in Naga literature would again be very different from the kind of feminism that you are talking about in other in other cultures and in other writings, you know, because there are layers and layers of discrimination which you would not recognize unless you live within those kind of experiences. So it's not, uh, you know, as uh, simple as uh, black feminism of Alice Walker or, you know, Tolly Morrison, but I think it's much more deeply layered 
because uh, not only are we facing uh, discrimination within ourselves, within our men, within our homes, but also the kind of racist attitude that we have you know, from the rest of the country and the world for that matter. That's the note we ended our conversation on. This conversation really made us think about how little we know about indigenous cultures in the Northeast. We release a new episode of this podcast every Monday, so be sure to tune in. This podcast is brought to you by TS Studios, the production company that brings the Swaddle's creative point of view to original podcasts and films.